Please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 11 and put a marker there. The title is simply Woe or Blessing. I guess I could have started out cursing or cursings or blessings, but uh, since sin entered into the world, we have all been under the curse. And that curse is that we are not perfect, we are not holy, and we are made to suffer in this world, seeking our provision from God through Jesus Christ especially. But the pronouncement of woe is not given to those who are under the curse, per se. It is given to those who reject the blessing of God to remove the curse from us. God has sent His Son into this world. The woe proclaims judgment upon those who would reject the life that God would give you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles as you have a marker in Revelation 11. Turn a few pages prior to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I want to revisit uh, how John introduces this book of Revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, for just a moment. In Revelation 1, verse 1 through 3, John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. You see here the issue of testimony. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, what testifies about Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Did you hear me emphasize a certain word? Blessed. Blessed is the governing word in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart regarding what is written because the time is near. Now this is symbolic language and even familiar terms, terms that we normally would say this is how it is, are also symbolic like the terms near and soon. They are symbolic even though we are accustomed to to taking them literally. But if the words soon and near are taken literal regarding what must take place according to this revelation, something is amiss since it's been 2,000 years and these things here in the book of Revelation have not yet been fully realized. So consider how John wrote in his letters regarding the time being near. If you are a quick page turner, you can go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. John says, Dear children, This is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. He says, this is the last hour. That means there is no time after that. This is it. This is the final process. There is no time left. What is in process will continue 
until it comes to pass. John is speaking to churches in his first century time period. He's not speaking to us per se. He's speaking to them. And as they are in the last hour, so are we. He's addressing a period of time, an imminent time of fulfillment, the last hour, which began at the death of Christ Jesus and his resurrection and will conclude until Jesus returns. To help clarify, consider the words of Jesus to the Jewish leadership recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. Jesus says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. This is not Jesus saying you will literally reign in the next 60 minutes, the next hour. This is Jesus referring to this short, definite period of time when evil, working through the hearts of evil men, are permitted to have their way. Jesus says to the governor, Roman governor Pontius Pilate, in John 19, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not granted to you from above. This is that same hour that he's talking about. That you are permitted to have this power over me. You are permitted to have this authority over me so that I can fulfill both the law and the prophets. Everything that God has promised can be fulfilled through me. That's why God the Father is permitting this to happen. Even the hour that they rule, that they reign, is permitted by God so that all things may be accomplished. Jesus needed to finish his ministry here on earth, fulfilling the revelation of the law and the prophets, culminating with his crucifixion, where darkness, the deceptive power of evil, momentarily reigns. Now, before we go any further, I want to make a a brief note on symbols. Just a brief note on symbols regarding how we understand the book of Revelation. Letters, as in the letters of your English alphabet, are symbols of sounds that you are able to make with your mouth. The confluence of particular symbols as letters fashioned into words and then sentences enable you to understand and communicate what you see and hear in this world. This is how we need to see the book of Revelation. The Apostle John is using familiar symbols, whether they be images or numbers, from the Old Testament to enable his hearers and readers to understand what he sees and hears being revealed to him from heaven. Dr. Robert Godfrey uh, puts it this way. He says, What is going to happen in the life of the church until Christ returns is given to us as pictures of what the Lord is doing in history for his people and how that history will culminate in the glorious return of Christ. Hence, we need to remember that revelation is given to the church to describe what is going to happen through the whole period of the church. Not century by century, but talking more generally about the life of the church so that in every century, despite the ebb and flow of history, Christ's church can be encouraged and know that we are blessed by Christ Jesus. 
Let's look now at our main text, Revelation 11, 12 through 14. This is talking about the witnesses who have been resurrected by the breath of God. And verse 12 says, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, the hour again, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. Let's pray. Father, instruct our hearts through your counsel. Lord, strengthen our wills. Strengthen our resolve to live for you in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the true condition of the church today? What is is the church's condition? As you consider the world we live in, is the church's condition one of woe in your perspective or one of blessing? It's estimated that in our time period, in our day, one out of nine Christians throughout the world are being persecuted for their faith. That's north of 200 million people who are being persecuted for their faith. And by persecution, I mean imprisonment, the threat of death, and things like that. You would never see it in our news, but it's going on throughout the world. Does that mean that the church is being persecuted? That our condition is one of woe? Or one of blessing. They were persecuted also in John's day. And John was being persecuted as he was on the island, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. According to the book of Revelation, if you belong to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are a member of his spiritual body, the spiritual church, then your condition is one of blessing, regardless of what's going on in the world today. Blessing is our condition. So why is your condition one of blessing? Well, Paul sums it up in his letter to Philippians, to the Philippians. And this highlight that we, we often put as a, uh, as a little reminder on our walls, this highlight, this, this proclamation uh, serves as, as kind of a, a proclamation for all of us as Christians and as a summary of Paul's teaching where he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. The reason we're blessed is because our life is in Christ Jesus. How many times do we say, Heidelberg Catechism question one, that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong body and soul to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why you and I are blessed. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of the resources that we have. It's not because of the friendships that we have. True, there can be blessings through these things, but the real reason we are blessed is because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we live for Him. His life is in us. 
And because his life is in us, we live for him. And even though we die, death is gain because he has secured our eternal future through his eternal life. If someone were to ask you, what's the main difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? How would you respond? To me, it comes off my head right off the bat. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. For us who have our faith secured in Christ Jesus, we entrust ourselves to Him knowing that He has secured our future. And we have nothing to fear. So we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Will we miss our loved ones who have gone on before us? Of course we will. And of course we do miss them. But death is not the end. Physical death is that passageway to what Jesus has promised us, what he has secured for us. Our hope is in the everlasting life of Jesus Christ who has gone before us to prepare, to prepare a place for us in his heavenly kingdom that is forever. That's why when you look at the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the summary of his life. What does it mean to live is Christ? It means to live for Christ. It means that you proclaim his gospel to all creation. Why? Because that is Jesus' command. Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news about me, about salvation through me, to all the world so that they too may know life in my name. So it is to proclaim Christ. It's to live for Christ, quite literally to imitate him. As one was a rabbi or a teacher in those days, his disciples would walk with him, and it wasn't just a matter of hearing what he said, it was a matter of imitating his actions. As God showed mercy through Christ to those around him, his disciples were also called to show mercy as well. We are called to the same responsibility to show mercy to those who are around us. And that means, as we looked at the Beatitudes, even loving those who persecute us, who hate us. And to do so, to love them with the intent that they would know the freedom of salvation through Jesus Christ, that they would know the love of God through Christ. Living for Christ Jesus means also seeking his counsel. Revealing to the world that Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God and that you are willing as a follower of Christ to lay aside anything that keeps you from following him. That shows forth a repentant heart. That we turn away from those things of the world that try and draw us back into our old nature. And we follow Jesus Christ who is leading us into the eternal glory of God. This is what's going on here in Revelation 11 where the Apostle John symbolically shows what Paul is saying when he says to live as Christ, to die as gain. You have two witnesses. They represent the church. These, these witnesses, as we have already uh, addressed before, represent uh, witnesses in a court. And they're, they're proclaiming the gospel. 
They're living the gospel. They're showing you everyone in the world who Jesus is by their conduct and by, by their proclamations. And the world despises them, hates them, and destroys them. But this is the victory of the church over the victory of the powers of this world. The church triumphant. Because even though it looks like the state has won, and by state I mean godless, evil state, even though it looks like the state has won over them, they are resurrected. How so? Through the breath of God. The breath of God that brought all of creation into existence now breathes into those who have been conquered seemingly physically and raises up a new army, raises up another people to worship and honor him. God will always have his servants in this world who will bear witness to his name. Always. Even to the end of days. So, there are two witnesses. And I think I want to address real quickly two reasons why the world hates the witness of the church. If, if your hope is that all you have in life is this life and you have nothing beyond the grave. I mean, if this is it, if this is your life and there's nothing to hope for beyond the grave, you certainly don't want somebody telling you that you ought to serve someone else instead of yourself. It's all about serving self. It's all about doing what's right in my eyes. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear this idea that there is a God, that there is a king of kings and Lord of lords who's going to, going to take everything into account, who's going to judge me. How dare he judge me? He's the one who made me like this, right? The Romans 9. Who can resist your will? If you made me like this, why should I be any different than what I am? And so there's spite towards those who know God's blessing, who know God's life, who know God's peace. The second reason the world despises the church is because we preach Christ crucified, meaning that the only way to God is through Jesus. The only way to God is through His righteousness, which is credited to our faith through His work on the cross. His sac God's sacrificial offering of His Son. You will know the blessings of God not because of your meritorious works, but because of the merit, meritorious work of Christ received by faith. Therefore we preach that whoever believes on Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned because you have not believed on the name of God's one and only Son. Fallen world despises this witness of the church because our sinful nature, as I said, leans quite heavily on selfishness and self-righteousness. But the question, what's behind this, is, is a certain question. And that is to be or not to be 
in right fellowship with God. To be or not to be in right fellowship with God. If the way has been shut by man's sin, will you trust God to make a way for you? Will we trust in God's provision? Will we trust in His grace? I mentioned uh, last Sunday the example of Cain and Abel because I think it's such a unique story that these two were brothers, the only two brothers on the face of the planet. And in in the right time, the Word of God is silent on God teaching them about uh, worship and about sacrifices and so forth, but the 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 it's in it's inferred in the text that God presented to them the proper way for sacrifice and what I want you to see is is just the issue of uh, the first firstborn both of them gave a sacrifice to God gave Cain gave some of the fruit of the field but Abel gave the first portions. Uh, first fruits and fat portions of his flocks. Now I want you to consider that Abel gave the firstborn of his flock and Cain did not give the first fruits of his field. In giving the first fruits as an offering to God, Abel is acknowledging that his flock and everything he has was given to him by God and actually belongs to God. This offering of first fruits is then an expression of faith that as the Lord has provided, he will continue to provide. Everything belongs to God. I am simply a tenant of what God has given to him. I give all the glory for what God has given and what God will continually provide. I give the glory to him. That is the teaching behind the first fruits. The matter that Cain did not bring the first fruits, but some of the fruits takes a different view of how he sees himself in relationship to God. Cain sees his crop as that which was produced by his effort rather than being provided by God. It is the effort of trying to earn God's favor by living what you think is the right way while not trusting in God's counsel and provision. And how can I say that? Well, God counseled Cain and told him, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? That is God's counsel. You are in error here. Correct your error. Repent. Turn to me in faith and your sacrifice will be received. And instead of turning to God in faith, what did Cain do? He killed the image bearer of God who was blessed by God, his brother Abel. That enmity is reflective in the world throughout. Why do Christians undergo persecution? Because the world hungers for what they have. They want the blessing of God, but they don't want to trust God. They don't want to put their faith in God. They still want to be their own gods. So in short, they they are rival gods. You want to be your own God, calling the shots, and yet receiving the blessings and benefits of God's creation for yourself. So Abel bore a better witness then that he presents the way of salvation being through faith in God. Cain sought to appease God, which reflects the belief of almost all the religions of the world, save for Christianity. So you see a pattern in the scriptures from that point on. That which is brought forth from sinful man or sinful human effort is not blessed, 
no matter how right this effort looks in the eyes of the beholder. That which is brought forth from faith in God is blessed, and there is enmity between these two. This enmity is revealed by God in such things as Pharaoh's dream, uh, and with the seven scrawny and ugly cows devouring the seven fat and healthy cows to satisfy their hunger. This shows how the world works in relationship to God's people. Uh, I know the, the cows refer to famine, but famine is a matter of hunger. And the hunger that's here is spiritual hunger. You want the life of God, but you don't want God in your life. That's the complexity, that's the frustration of the non-believer. Is I want God's blessing, I just don't want God. And so you hunger for what God's people have. And you see the world devouring it. And yet, even though they devour it, like the seven lean cattle devouring the seven fat and healthy blessed cattle, even though they devour it, they're still hungry. They're still scrawny. They're still troubled. It's what you see with people who are hungry so much for power and control so that they think they can be happy. And yet the more they struggle for it, the more there is, there is trouble in their lives instead of peace, instead of contentment. I remember a certain apologist talking about meeting with uh, some very wealthy people who had worked hard all their lives to climb the, the economic ladder, the financial ladder, the ladder of success. And they said, when we got to the top, we thought everything would be glorious. And yet it was empty. We have all this wealth. We have all these resources. We have all kinds of friends. And yet our lives are empty. Is this the way it's supposed to be? which opened the door for this apologist to address them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hunger is not satisfied. Those who are blessed strive to be blessed. Those who are not blessed strive to be blessed by devouring those whom God has blessed. But unless you repent and turn to Christ Jesus in faith, your spiritual hunger remains no matter how much you try to satisfy it with the things of this world. Pastor Kim Riddlebarger uh, speaks to this issue. He says, John's vision together with church history shows that the world's victories over the church are temporary and empty because of God's resurrection power. Paul Gardner writes, however many times churches are destroyed and God's people martyred or exiled or persecuted and however many celebrations there are of those events, Among the unbelievers across the world, God will continue always to raise up for himself his church. And again, this happens because of the breath of life coming from God, being breathed into his people. Because Jesus lives, so shall I. Because of his life in me. Well, the world in Revelation 11 sees the church rise again and contemplates, theorizes what's going on. They try and rationalize it away. But God sends, God sends judgments into, into the world. And it's not, not judgments per se that are, that are meant to 
condemn, but to shake people up. To shake your understanding. When you think about hurricanes and tornadoes and all these things that take place. I remember the flood, that major flood in Iowa uh, that went through um, Cedar Rapids. And how so many people, so many Christians would pull together and help out their neighbors. And what a blessing that was during that time of need. And, and some came to a saving faith during that time. When you see the earthquake taking place here after these servants are resurrected into heaven, what you see is God shaking people's understanding to the point where they're questioning, you know, what is life about? And who is this God? With the hope that they will place their faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite musical presentations is the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir singing a rendition of Psalm 34. And this is the blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 11, it talks about God taking up the witnesses. He says, come up here. And they're gathered up into a cloud. And and we know what that cloud is. If you go to Hebrews 12, you know that that is a great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before, who have been purchased and pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the Messiah, not receiving the blessing of of knowing Him as their Messiah, but looking forward to God's provision for them as well as the New Testament believers that through Jesus Christ they would be saved. And this crowd of witnesses is singing to the Lord of glory. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation, do we not? These witnesses bearing witness to who Christ is, glorifying God, glorifying the Lamb who who has slain Jesus Christ and honoring the Holy Spirit. We see God's people worshiping Him. And it's the exact opposite from the beast that rises from the waters below. That it rises from the world to make war against God's people. You see this assembly, the waters from below. They are coming up from the world to try and make war against heaven. And you have the people from heaven coming down and bearing witness to the victory that is theirs in Jesus Christ that has been accomplished and will be secured forevermore. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David and this glorious uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, a massive full choir with beautiful voices, Start singing it. And as they go through the courses, it starts out, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my enemies. This is your blessing. Your blessed estate in Christ Jesus. Those who look on Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. With each verse, the power of the chorus uh, gets stronger and stronger, growing to the crescendo, looking at, at, at the angel of the Lord as being the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, knowing that it is through Jesus Christ that they will be saved. And they're building as, as to a crescendo as you hear the voices of this wonderful choir bearing witness to the glory of God, singing out with all their hearts to all who will hear, magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt His name together. As glorious, and, and that, that 
presentation is anointed with the Holy Spirit. You can watch a rerun after rerun after rerun and it will move you because you see this choir bearing witness and it's the beautiful picture of the church honoring and praising God for who He is to the world around them and inviting people not to stay away but to come. Come in and exalt the Lord together with us. Magnify His name together. And as glorious as that choir is, the cloud of witnesses that the church is gathered up in is thousands of times more glorious. As you have all these people, this massive choir, this great cloud of witnesses, praising God, saying, come, let us magnify the name of the Lord. Let us praise His name forever. This is the blessed estate of of God's people, of His church. Our responsibility is to share it, not only to proclaim it in praise and worship and in, in discipleship, but to share His love to those who even hate us and despise us and would forsake us. Why? Because our life is secure in Christ. Theirs is not. Even if it results in our death, bringing them to Christ Jesus, so be it, that they may know the Lord and know His blessing even as we do. That's why Christ Jesus came into this world, so that we might share in His blessing, so that we might know His life and have it in abundance Securing us not only in this place, in this world, but eternally with Him in His heaven, in His kingdom forever. Woe to those who would reject God's gift of life through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Blessed are those who hear His voice and heed His counsel and put their faith in Him. Amen.